This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at the pressure on the NCAA and how it relates to North Carolina. For the News and Observer and NC Insider, I'm Brian Murphy, your host for this episode of Under the Dome. It's Friday, April 2nd. The NCAA men's and women's basketball tournaments are down to their final four and without any ACC teams, I might add. And the NCAA is facing political pressure on all sides, not just because of the obvious unequal treatment for the women in this year's tournament, which unfortunately became the number one story of that tournament for a few weeks. The United States Supreme Court heard a legal challenge to the NCAA this week, a case that could change college athletics as we know them. The plaintiffs in the case are arguing basically that the NCAA is violating antitrust laws by capping the benefits the players can receive from a college tied to education. Instead, they'd like to see schools be able to offer their own package of benefits and or perks in recruitment or retention, like a free market. If one school wants to offer iPads and laptops to incoming college athletes, they should be free to do that. On a completely different front, the NCAA and its member schools face a July 1 deadline to figure out how to handle name, image, and likeness rights. Some states, including Florida most notably, will allow college athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness as soon as July 1. That cur- that's currently against NCAA rules. Other states are moving quickly. Congress is not. This is a politics podcast, so we're not going to get into the sporting ramifications of what all this could mean, but instead focus on what North Carolina is doing or not doing in response to this and what the future holds for one of the state's most important businesses, college athletics. I'm joined by News & Observer sports columnist Luke DeCock. Luke, thanks for coming on the podcast today. A lot to cover here. Uh, Let's start here. Public opinion, in my mind, has moved very quickly on these issues surrounding what I'll call athletes' rights. I've covered college athletics for nearly two decades. You've probably been doing it even longer than that. Have you noticed a shift, and what do you attribute that to? I think there's absolutely been a shift. And I, I think in a lot of ways, it, it has to do with the fact that people are realizing just how much money is actually in the system. And I think the number one sort of instigating event for a lot of this, for a lot of the change in opinion, is, is, is coaches' salaries. That people look at, at, at coaches' salaries. I shouldn't say coaches' salaries. Only, salaries and facilities. They look at what coaches are making and strength coaches are making and the, you know, the football facilities with lazy rivers and flight simulators in them. And they say, wait, I thought this was a nonprofit business. I thought we couldn't afford to pay the players. The reality is it's a billion-dollar business, and everyone's getting rich except the players. So my argument with people who, you know, like Justice Breyer today, have issues with sort of the idea of tearing down college sports is, hey, look, there was a point where a full scholarship and books and meals and room and board was fair compensation for what an athlete brought to a university. That was true for a long time. That's not true anymore. This is a industry. It's a business. And athletes create the wealth that goes to other people. So people have realized two things. One, there's a ton of money in this system and athletes aren't getting any of it. And two, the people who create that wealth aren't getting any of it. So it's there's an understanding now that College sports is fundamentally exploitative of athletes, and it does that on several levels. But people have kind of come around to that to the point where, you know, it's almost a sign now of being aware of this stuff, whether or not you use the term student athlete. The people who use that term 
you know, the NCAA created that term to avoid paying workers comp to athletes. That's the genesis of the term. A lot of people don't know that. The NCAA has done a really good job of sort of wedging that into the vernacular. And what a lot of us who maybe once used that term innocently have realized is that's a very loaded term because it implies that they're not just athletes, that we can't treat them as athletes. But the, the thing is, the NCAA doesn't treat them like regular students either. It's a completely meaningless verbiage. And the people who don't use that term tend to have awakened to some of these issues. And that that needle has shifted a lot over the last, I would say, 10 years. But really, you've seen it accelerate over the last two to three years as some of these lawsuits have sort of exposed and the salaries have sort of exposed more of the fundamentals at work. And I think we're seeing that with politicians, right? They, they tend to react to the issues that are boiling up. Now we're seeing in, in various states and in Congress, there's a move to to do something, to do something, to give athletes, uh, these college athletes, access more access uh, to things that me and you take for granted, our, our name, image, and likeness. Um, let, let's start with the, with the case at the Supreme Court, um, even though these are two totally, not totally different, these are two different issues. I think they, they, they come together in a lot of ways. The Supreme Court, the NCAA's argument, and I listened to it, um, says we need these amateurism rules, which we created, and mean whatever we say they mean. But we need these rules in place so that we have a game that fans will watch. If we become professional athletics, nobody will watch our sport anymore, and, and college, it'll ruin our business, and, and, and that's it. The, the, the athletes in this case, uh, who, who the government actually argued on the side of the athletes in this case, said that that's not true. You, like any other business, should have to compete for labor. Um, maybe there should be some restrictions because you do provide some uh, non-economic benefits running college athletics but look the sport is more popular sports are more popular than they've ever been even as you've loosened some of these rules over time is that is that a is that a fair reading of it and how, how does this shake out i mean you obviously come down on the side that they're not going to lose fans even if college athletes get a little bit more. yeah I, I think it's a fair reading of it i think the the the, the thing people lose track of on alston even people in, in our business and people who should know better this is not about paying players you know, people get people get caught up in that. There was an op-ed in USA Today the other day. We can't pay players and we'll go broke. It, this isn't about paying players. The, the NCAA's argument is basically people are only interested in our product because the laborers are unpaid. And therefore, we deserve to keep that system. This is like you and I saying people are only interested in our shoes because they're made by child labor. And therefore, we should be allowed to use child labor to make our shoes. The, the court's perspective in some of their questions today were basically, you don't regulate coach salaries. That was, I think, Thomas, or maybe it was Alito who, who asked. Yeah, Justice Thomas. It was Thomas. Yeah. So a rare question from Thomas to start with. And the idea, his question was basically, look, you spend unlimited amounts on coaches' salaries. Why does it matter what you pay the athletes? It's, it's, a, it's a terrific question. Uh, you know, in the end, this is a basic antitrust case. Are the NCA's limits on compensation, zero compensation, basically, because each of these antitrust lawsuits has wedged the bar slightly higher, is that anti-competitive and is that an antitrust violation? And the NCA's argument is basically, as you said, amateur sports is what we say it is, and you can't mess with that because otherwise it wouldn't be amateur sports. So, you know, what Alston is about is the NCA's ability to set limits on, as you said, things like compensation, 
it would open the door to players getting more of that pool, but it doesn't necessarily mean universities are going to start writing checks to their athletes. Um, it's basically about the power of the NCAA to set its, not just set its own rules, but because it's a monopsony, it controls the entire market for this labor. You know, we have laws that govern that. And should the NCAA be subject to those same laws? And we've seen this with the Northwestern football players who tried to unionize. I think if that happened again, they would get a more favorable ruling from the from the Labor Relations Board, just based on what we just talked about, the way that belief in some of these foundational issues has shifted. And I think whatever the court rules in Alston, and, and as, as you know, trying to read which way the justices are thinking based on their questions is, uh, has has derailed a lot of people who are smarter than I am. But what Alston is going to do is set the tone for everything else that's going to happen in college athletics in the next 20 years. Will the NCAA have the power to define and enforce what it thinks amateurism is? Or does that become something that, like anything else in America, is subject to A, the free market, and B, the laws that we have to govern and oversee that market? And so that's why Alston is significant. This is not a should players get paid or not Supreme Court case. That's where people get lost. Well, they can't rule in favor of Alston. Uh, they'll destroy the NCAA. Uh, that, that's not the case. That you know, this is about the NCAA's ability to restrict what players get, and the NCAA's ability to set those rules without being subject to existing laws. Two interesting things, and we'll move off of the Supreme Court case that came out of questions, I think, both from conservative justices. One was what you mentioned about Clarence Thomas, indicating coaches' salaries are not regulated by the same market. The NCAA tried that. They tried to do a, a, a they tried to cut down on the on the cost of at least one assistant coach, and they lost in court. They got laughed out of court, basically. And two, one of the justices mentioned, you actually are paying players. You're, but you're paying them in kind. They have lower admission standards than than a general college student. A college uh, student, they have they get books and tuition. They get cost of attendance. They're they're being the NCAA says well, we can't pay players. The justice was saying, well, you actually are paying players. You're just paying them in a, in a different way, and you're paying them so little that it really fits your system. Right. Right. Um. We'll move on from the Supreme Court case because I, I I do want to talk North Carolina politics on the, here and North Carolina lawmakers put put together a study commission on this a, a couple of years ago in 2019, uh, not on these exact issues but on, on issues surrounding athlete rights. In 2019, they had a bipartisan bill in the North Carolina Senate. Uh, it didn't it, it included things like allowing athletes the right to their own legal representation in disciplinary cases. Um, there's a bill this session that would allow North Carolina athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness and to hire agents. Uh, the 2019 bill didn't go anywhere. This bill doesn't appear like it's going anywhere. The powerful UNC system, which which obviously has a lot of clout in the state, you know, worked against it. As I said in the intro, by July 1st, some states may have these laws in place that would allow recruits or athletes to, to receive compensation for their name, image, and likeness. What is North Carolina doing? Is there anything the state can do? Or are they counting on the NCAA to get an injunction somewhere in this country that kind of puts puts all that on hold until, A, the Supreme Court rules, B, Congress steps in? Yeah, I, I, I think, one, I think the with all these NIL bills in other states that go into effect July 1st, I think everybody, including the people who wrote those bills, is, is expecting there to be a sort of blanket injunction um, at a federal level or maybe on a state-by-state -state level 
to keep this stuff from going in force because there are legal issues here that need to be addressed and adjudicated. Some of them are waiting on Alston. Uh, you know, whether whether or not the NCAA is even going to have the power to restrict NIL after Alston, it may become clear that it doesn't. So some of this is going to be, you know, this sort of piecemeal approach, I think, is going to be dealt with through legal maneuvering. I mean, and, and honestly, I think it makes sense for everyone. It's a huge failing of the NCAA's leadership. And I don't mean Mark Emmert, the president, who's basically just a figurehead, but it's the university presidents who set the path of the NCAA collectively. A, to not see this coming, and B, to do nothing about it, has put the NCA in this position where it's going to spend a ton of legal fees because it didn't come up with a blanket NIL rule ahead of time. This is not new. This case has been working through the courts since like 2009. So they've over a decade. No, NIL and, and NIL bills have been on the agenda for two or three years. The NCA has studiously done nothing about it other than a huge press release that said, we're going to allow NIL that got headlines from credulous people which Mark Walker openly called a bait and switch. You know, the former you know, U.S. representative from Greensboro. I mean, he was out in front saying, I hope this isn't a bait and switch, which it was. He was right. And obviously he was a, a sponsor of an NIL bill, that federal NIL bill that didn't go anywhere. You know, Wiley Nichols sponsored two NIL bills in North Carolina, the current one and one in the last session that didn't go anywhere. And, he, you know, they're just right now in North Carolina, other than Walker, who's a Republican, there doesn't seem to be bipartisan support for it. I'm not sure why that is. This seems like a slam dunk winning issue for any politician who wants to grab it. As you mentioned, the power of the UNC lobby is strong. Um, and UNC Athletic Director Bubba Cunningham is actually who I think is normally a very forward thinking guy who does put the interests of the athletes ahead of administrators and whatnot. Uh, has been very uh, sort of reactionary on NIL, um, has actually argued in emails that we've obtained that we can't let this money go to the athletes who create it. Like, that's a really strong language uh, of exploitation. Um, I, I just think Bubba's just wrong on this. His argument would be if we have to give, if, if football and basketball players can activate their image rights, they're going to take sponsorship money from us. And we won't be able to support golf and track and whatnot. One, that's just BS. Like, university has been crying poor for decades. Jim Delaney, the Big Ten commissioner, another UNC alum, actually claimed at one point that if cost of attendance went through, this is a court document. He testified to this. If cost of attendance went through, the Big Ten would have to consider dropping to Division Three. This, they cry wolf every time, and it's fine every time. Now, I think Bubba genuinely worries about paying the balancing the budget, I should say, if if NIL goes through. But what we've seen from people who have looked into this is the vast majority of NIL money is going to be from outside the system. It's going to be like social media influencers who can suddenly activate their presences. So you've got Louisville's freshman point guard, who isn't even the best player on her team. One study says she could make a million dollars a year off her Instagram account. Like that's not taking money from Louisville. Louisville's not marketing Haley Van Lith's Instagram account to Papa John. That's money coming into the system that's just not being activated right now because athletes aren't allowed to. And it's also going to be athletes who are actors or musicians who are going to be allowed to monetize their YouTube channels. Like if, if I play basketball at UNC and I'm a guitarist, I'm a classical guitarist, and I do YouTube videos of me playing the guitar, if I charge for those videos – I would lose my eligibility to play basketball. How stupid is that? But that's an NCA rule. That's what the NCA does. It exists 
to penalize players who accidentally got telephone stipends that the school gave them and then did it in error and then took away a conference title. Right. It's just, it's this not, anyway, to bring it back to North Carolina, this is absolutely relevant to the state. Alston is relevant to the state. The NIL debate is, I, I, I told Jim Phillips, the new ACC commissioner a couple of weeks ago, when we were, I wrote a very harsh column criticizing him for not speaking at the ACC tournament when two teams, two quarterfinalists, Duke and Virginia, two of the biggest teams in the league were lost to COVID. And we had a conversation after that, a cordial, you know, kind of explaining our points of view. And I told him, look, you got to understand you're the second most powerful person in the state behind the governor. Like this is, this is a big deal down here. We take this more seriously. Like, I know you think you did in the Big Ten, but this is a big college athletics is a big deal down here. We don't have the Bears or the Bulls or any of that stuff. Like we got Duke and State, Carolina, and that's obviously we have the Panthers and whatnot. But statewide, you know, this is college sports is a big deal in North Carolina. For those who who aren't familiar necessarily with name, image, and likeness, this would just allow someone to if, if a car dealership wants to sign you up to sign autographs in the summer for two hours. Right now, you can't get paid for that. This would allow you to get paid for that. I, you know, I spent a lot of time of my career covering Boise State football. That's a small market, but those those guys are superstars in that market. They are the equivalent of Zion Williamson or Michael Jordan in Boise, the quarterback of the Boise State Broncos, or even the cornerback of the Boise State Broncos has has a lot of value uh, in the community that is not being realized right now. The star gymnast at UCLA, Unbelievable. Um, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and and people say. Oh, if you can pay players for their image rights, you know, Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State are getting all the players. Guess what? They already do. Like, it can't get any worse. It's not going to get any worse. What it could do, and you mentioned Boise State's a great example, Memphis, Tulsa. These schools now will be able to keep players from going to Alabama and Clemson because they can say, look, at Alabama, you're one of 82 guys trying to get the Ford dealer to put you in a commercial. You stay home and play left tackle for us here in Tulsa. Here in Greenville, North Carolina, you know, we're going to put the Ford dealers going to put you and they're at like it becomes a recruiting inducement. And everyone's like, that's a bad thing. I'm like, that's a great thing. Like Jalen Gardner is East Carolina's big basketball star. He just put his name in the transfer portal. There's no reason for him to stay at ECU for his his senior year. Like he can go to a bigger school, help his draft prospects. But if that guy had been there for three years as ECU star and had relationships with boosters and sponsors and bars. Like that could be, he could be the Sup Dogs Greenville, <laughs> East Carolina endorsing. Like he could make $500,000, $100,000, 50, enough to make it worth his while to stay for a fourth year. Like you want to take care of the transfer epidemic, give players a reason to stay. There's been a lot, and, and uh, Judge Barrett mentioned women's sports and the thing that there's been a lot of reporting. I know, I know the News Observer did a story about women might actually be able to benefit the most from this. Um, clean up. They're going to clean up. I want to I want to drive it a little bit back to North Carolina. Obviously, the UNC system is very powerful, but but in Florida, the the Florida university system is very powerful. And Alabama and South Carolina, these states are moving quickly. They see a recruiting benefit as as you've just laid out. They see this as a competitive advantage issue for them. And obviously, you know any of the SEC states, if one state does it, the, the rest of them are going to follow because they don't want to get left behind. But I wonder where that kind of thinking is in North Carolina. It doesn't seem like anyone is is pushing that. Like, we don't want to get left behind. We don't want North Carolina and Mac Brown to lose recruits to, to Florida State because 
you know, uh, Sam Howell can, can't generate money off his name, image, and likeness in North Carolina, but he can in, in, in Florida. Now, I, I think their rationale is, hey, this is all going to get sorted out on a national level. But if it doesn't, <laughs> and, and the NCAA has been very slow to act on a lot of these issues, if it doesn't, and suddenly all your, your recruits are going to, to Florida and Clemson and, and South Carolina, someone in North Carolina is going to be held accountable for that, I would imagine. I'm, I'm baffled why the, this strikes me as such a bipartisan winner. And maybe I'm biased because I think it's just so obvious that, A, it's going to happen, B, it should happen, and C, it's going to be actually be really good for college athletics when it does happen. That I would, if I were a state representative or state senator in North Carolina, if I were Governor Cooper, I would want to be out front saying, hey, you know, California and Florida and other states, they've got this figured out. We are going to be left behind. And what does it say about our care and concern for the athletes that we're willing to sort of, by our inaction, let this system persist? And I don't know, like, obviously, look, I'm a sports guy. I dabble in politics occasionally. I did a month on the political team ahead of the election, basically doing all the stories you didn't want to do. <laughs> and it's fine. Like, but I don't, you know, I'm not, I know who some of the power brokers are and I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't know enough about the halls of the, you know, the general assembly to know why a bill like this doesn't have bipartisan support and why even without bipartisan support, it's not being rushed to the floor so everybody can get on TV talking about how much they love college sports and how good this will be. It just, it seems like such a winner to me uh, that I don't, and, and not one that's politically fraught unless there is just incredible pressure from the UNC board of governors or some other entity like that, not to take it up, which would be unbelievably short-sighted on their part. I talked with Bob Orr this week, a former North Carolina Supreme Court justice who's been involved on this issue for, for a while since the North Carolina academic scandal, really. He kept mentioning healthcare as one of the issues that that he's really focused on. We, we talk about name, image, and likeness and, and some of the other things, um, but establishing some sort of long-term healthcare policy for players who have to deal with injuries that they suffered during their college career but may not manifest until 10 years down the line, five years down the line. That again, that seems like such an easy winner. Like, like that. That's not that wouldn't cost a ton of money, um, and it would just be a, an easy victory for these schools or for these conferences or for a state lawmaker to say, "Yeah, let's let's do something to take care of football players and volleyball players and soccer players who get hurt during their career, but but don't necessarily need a surgery until five years later or six years later." It's another one. And and I think part of the problem is a lot of people, including probably a lot of legislators, just assume that it's taken care of. But the reality is if you're playing football at UNC and you break your leg and five years later you develop severe arthritis, the school doesn't care. You don't get to go back and get treated. Now, some schools will, but there's no obligation. Uh, if you have a suffer a couple concussions in college playing soccer or wrestling or whatever, and you start to have long-term ramifications from that. I mean, that's the reason why people don't want to touch this because it's like the NFL con concussion lawsuit. You start to open the door to long-term life-changing dementia, but it's the right thing to do. And I, I commend Bob for taking it on. To me, this is another one that seems like an easy win. If you sustain an injury in college, the college should be liable for your medical care. You know, I don't know for what period of time, I would argue indefinitely if you can connect it directly to the injury. But uh, that that just seems like such a an obvious thing. And uh, there's a lot of things like that that people assume because they make sense are happening that that aren't in the world of college athletics. I do think Phillips, Jim Phillips, the new ACC commissioner, I do think he gets it. 
Um, I thought John Swafford, the outgoing, the recently retired ACC commissioner, really started to get it at the end. I think the last couple of years of Swafford's tenure, he understood or embraced some of these changes in a way he hadn't before. I think he really underwent an awakening. And the ACC actually became a collegiate leader in, in, in mental health. And, you know, we need more. This is another obvious winner. And the ACC really embraced it with both arms. We need to do more for the mental health of our athletes because, you know, we don't have the same resources for them that we do for academics or physical ailments that, that they need for mental health. The ACC's had summits and protocol. I mean, they've done a really nice job of that. They did that under Swafford and will continue to do that in the future. And I think Phillips, even more than Swafford at the end, understands that the NCAA has to change to survive. And the ACC, because the NCAA isn't like the IRS. That's the other thing people don't get. It's not this big organization that has its own agenda. It really, the, the presidents and the Power Five conferences, is, especially now with this with quote-unquote autonomy, where the Power Five conferences can make their own rules, set the agenda. And the ACC is going to have to be a big part of setting an agenda that the Big Ten and, and some of these other conferences aren't as excited about the SEC because they're making more money. But in some cases, whether it's healthcare, mental health, NIL, things like that, it's the right thing to do. And it's going to happen through the courts or legislatures anyway. So you might as well get ahead of it. You know, it's like the old there's an old sports writing joke about the guy who covered a horse race and refused to put the betting payouts in because it was about the beauty of the horses. And another writer told him, well, you need to put the payouts in because if you don't, the desk will, and they'll put them in the wrong place. Right. It's the same way with all this stuff. Like if the NCAA wants this done right, it should do it itself. Otherwise, it's going to get imposed on it, and it's not going to be as smooth, workable. It's going to be a huge mess for everybody. Like, you know this stuff is coming. Do it yourself. Don't wait for some judge to tell you what to do. But that's not the way the NCAA operates because – They've been fat and happy for too long and got their own way for too long, and nobody really wants to be the person who reforms it. Let, let me end with uh, with two quick ones, uh, and, and they both lead off what you just said. When I talked to Bob Orr, he talked about university presidents. He'd like to see them take some leadership. You mentioned them earlier. Is it too late? Is it too late for the university presidents? Is, is the horse out of the barn, as they say, and and this is going to have to come down from, from on high, whether it's Congress, whether it's the Supreme Court? Have, have university presidents missed their moment? I don't know that they have. I mean, I think I think they will. I don't know that they have yet. There's still a chance. I, I, and, and to be fair to them, everything's being held up now by Alston. Like nothing's going to happen or could really happen until June because the ground rules of the game could change and probably will to some degree, whether it's for better or for worse from the NCAA's perspective. June is when we expect the Supreme Court to, to issue its ruling. That's the end of the Supreme Court's term. I think it's mid-June, so the ruling will come before then. Um, so so I think there's still a chance once they have Alston, once they know what the, the new ground rules are. My question would be, is the NCAA's bureaucracy, which is a giant and giants move slowly, equipped to push through the kind of changes that are needed quickly enough? I think if they really want to, if Emmert, Mark Emmert, the NCAA president, and some of the powerful presidents and powerful commissioners and powerful ADs said, look, we're going to have an emergency meeting and push some of this through, they could do it. I just don't think they will. And then the last question I have is, how does this end? How do you see it ending? Does it end with, with some sort of Olympic model for name, image, and likeness? Does it end with the Power Five, the, the most powerful teams, including NC State and North Carolina and Duke, sort of doing their own thing and, and leaving the, as we heard today, as we heard in the, the Supreme Court case, 1,100 schools under the NCAA umbrella are the most powerful 60 or 70 of them going to go do their own thing and, and let 
the schools that, uh, as one justice said, are, are truly in the student athlete business, uh, you know, handle things their way and let the schools that are, are generating these massive television contracts, these massive coaching salaries do things their way. Well, one, uh, the answer to your first part about NIL is like you mentioned the Olympic model. Like, yeah, like Usain Bolt's a billionaire. Does that make it like that doesn't stop anyone from wanting to watch him run? Um, you know, like John Carlos and Tommy Smith did it for the love of running because they didn't have a choice. You know, guys like that would, you know, become huge figures now and be able to profit from that. The dream team, like, yeah, the Olympics, it's going just fine. <laughs> right. So, I, you know, and and look, here's the other thing. This is another one of the NCAA's dirty little secrets. It's not a secret, but they don't like to shout about it. If you're a foreign athlete and you s- compete in the Olympics and your country gives you a bonus, you get to keep it. There was a, a swimmer, I think, from Singapore who got a million-dollar bonus without losing his NCAA eligibility. Right, right. Like, that's okay. Um, so, so yeah, like, NIL, like, we're all going to be fine. Like, that's not even an issue to me. Like, yeah, we're, we'll be okay. Now, the other part of it, I think, is, is, is interesting. Um, I don't think there will be a Power 5 breakaway because the NCAA is a useful idiot to them. It's a front man. It takes all the heat. With this autonomy that they put in the last few years, they make all their own decisions anyway. You know, Division Two, you know, is closer to Division One with scholarships. Division Three is completely different. You know, what the NCAA basically does, everyone gets caught up in enforcement. It runs championships. It actually does a pretty good job of that. Like, like uh, despite the furor over the men's and women's tournaments this year, which is completely avoidable and stupid and dumb. Like, how did you not see that coming? The NCAA actually does a really good job of putting on championships. It does a less good job of making its own rules and enforcing them. But I think the NCAA will continue to exist in some form because for the same reasons it exists now. Schools need someone else to blame. Schools don't trust each other. And despite the different levels having different rules, they have enough in common that it makes sense to be to have a common gover- governing body. And that may change. The Division three may break off. Division two may break off at some point. But I, I think, you know, I think the power five schools have enough control over their own destiny now that there's no reason for them to leave the NCAA. They can do, you know, they already control football. The NCAA has nothing to do with college football uh, other than enforcing rules. Uh, so, so yeah, no, I, I think the, the predictions of the NCAA's downfall are a bit premature. Well, Luke, thank you so much for all this insight. And we'll be watching it, obviously, over the next, uh, you know, five or six months as we get closer to, to June and, and July. These deadlines are coming up creeping creeping up quickly on uh, both the NCAA and its member institutions. Um, for the News and Observer and, and North Carolina Insider, I'm Brian Murphy. See you next time. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.